You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. Hey, listen, if you have your scriptures uh, and you're there, uh, paper or digital, we're going to be in Galatians chapter 5 today. And um, if you were not here last week, um, we had just begun a series called uh, The Holy Spirit. And, uh, and so during the, uh, during the year, if you're new here, we're usually going through whole books of the Bible, left to right, finding truth to trust, and just trusting God to bring up the topics that we need to talk about. But then in the summertime, in the summer, we usually try to kick it into a topical series and just sort of say what would be a good hashtag, a good topic to go after. And so uh, this July, we've been looking at the Holy Spirit. Um, and uh, just the next couple of weeks, we're going to be looking at um, the gifts of the Spirit, the fruits of the Spirit, baptism of the Spirit, all these types of different topics. Um, but not losing sight of the identity of who the Spirit is. And uh, the Spirit, um, as, as I've put in the notes and kind of as part of the series to focus on uh, for the next couple of weeks, is um, God's personal presence. And, um, and so the Spirit, um, sometimes in our language or subtle ways that we talk about the Spirit, um, can become a little bit of an it or uh, a chi or a force. Uh, that would not be, not be the earnest way to talk about God's Spirit. God's Spirit is not an it. God's Spirit is a he and uh, he is part uh, of the Trinity, and so it, he is not a force to be with you, kind of like Luke Skywalker. He has a mind, a will, and emotion. He can be grieved, he can be quenched, and he can direct our steps. And so the Spirit, the Spirit is not just power, but he is personal, and he lives with us. The Spirit is not a hotel. Uh, he, he does make a home with us. He lives with us. And so uh, the Spirit um, is presence. He is right here with us right now, and uh, he cannot uh, be lost. We have been sealed with him uh, if we're in Christ. And then lastly, the Spirit doesn't just come to make things easier for us. He comes to think, make things possible. Uh, the Christian life is, 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 is difficult, too hard to do without the Holy Spirit. And really, the Spirit has not come just to make uh, hard things easy. He's come to make impossible things possible. So the Spirit is most exemplified, most typified in the Scriptures by before and after pictures. And so you look at Jesus, even without the Spirit, for 30 years, did no ministry. The perfect man could do no ministry without the Spirit. But the second he comes, he can heal and he's... Um, extending the kingdom of heaven and, and offering that for poor people, poor and spirit people like you and me. The spirit hovered over the dark and you had chaos for ongoing until the spirit hovers over the dark and, get, it, and is commanded and the spirit goes and creates in seven days um, a creation where God's temple could dwell. The spirit, the spirit is the thing that makes Sarah's barren womb come to life. The spirit is the thing that fills Mary's womb to give birth to Jesus. Without the spirit, we know that there is, there is no life. There is no order. There is no beauty. And so that's what we've been looking at is, is, um, is just the... the the Spirit. Who is the Holy Spirit, and what is what is He up to? Um, my uh, uh, um, my 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 whole family has kind of gotten into uh, the NBA. Much probably not to your surprise, because of uh, you know, as uh, as the heart of the father goes, so the heart of the kids go, I guess as well, right? And so Space Jam has been the new thing around my house, and we're super excited about watching the NBA Finals. I know that uh, LeBron James probably was planning his ascendancy right into the throne of the GOAT uh, and was going to have a nice Space Jam little party this week, and it just not, didn't work out for him in the playoffs. Uh, but my family watches a lot of hoops, and um, we were all uh, sad, if you guys remember, it was what, a couple years ago, this was two years ago, when Kobe Bryant passed away. You know, the great NBA star Kobe Bryant passed away in a helicopter crash, and um, he... Uh, 
he meant so much, I guess, to that world, and uh, he was the first high school into the pros type of guy, and he was the next, like, heir apparent to Michael Jordan and that kind of a thing. I remember when uh, Kobe died, um, there was this hashtag that came out about him, about how he was a girl dad. Do you remember that? And so they would talk about how, you know, a lot of times the alpha male likes to have boy dads and raise them up in the sport, but Kobe loved having girls, and he had all three girls and trained them up and had them do uh, basketball, but also princess stuff and write books and all sorts of things. And so uh, there was this whole thing about, hey, what does it mean to be a girl dad? Um, I was thinking about it this week, and, and my, my dear wife, Kyra, who was serving down in the kids earlier uh, in the first service, um, I think in the same way that Kobe's, you know, girl dad, like, Kyra makes a great boy mom. I don't know if you've ever met a boy mom before, the ones that get down in the mud, the ones that are screaming at the ref during the football game, the ones that are all about kind of the guy stuff, the Power Rangers and the Diegos and all that kind of stuff, because they just, it's not that they love football, they just love the, the son that's playing on the football field. And so uh, Kyra's all about the monsters, and she will get messy with the kids and get muddy with the kids and read them monster storybooks because, you know, little boys like Ollie, they don't want to read about, you know, patty cakes or whatever and princesses. They want to read about gruffalos and bears and monsters. And so Kyra's into it because Ollie's into it. Uh, Kyra um, gets into basketball just like me. And so we went to the Charlotte Hornets game a couple of years ago, and we got down there pretty close to the front, which is fun. And uh, there she is. She wore my T-shirt, but she was all in. And don't forget, she also, of course, thrifty, you know, Proverbs 31. She grabbed those, like, empty beer cups and brought them home and washed them and gave them souvenirs. So, you know, that's how, that's how Proverbs 31 will do it, the wise woman. And so she gets into it because we're into it. And, uh, and Alec, you know, loves the Legos, and Kyra's not into Legos. But you know what? Alec's into Legos. We into Legos. We do the Legos because Alec's into Legos. What is it about uh, love? What is it about family? that can not just change your behavior, change your actions, but change your heart. Not just change what you do, but change what you want to do. That that mom somehow, because their little Johnny goes out into the football field and he's maybe even on the bench, that all of a sudden she just loves football. Not because she loves football, because she loves Johnny and Johnny's on the football field and she loves whatever Johnny's up to. What is it about love that can transform us from the inside out? I was watching this, this little kid and he couldn't uh, get outside in public's parking lot with a bushel of flowers to give to his parents, through his, to his mom, through the window. Like he couldn't get outside fast enough to give those flowers. It's not that six-year-old kids love flowers. They love moms and they want to do good by mom and they want to bring the flowers. What is it about love that doesn't just change our actions, can change our desires, change our heart? And so um, when we think about the nature of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, he... He lives in us. We know these things. He dwells in us. Some of us don't have a really great category for the Holy Spirit, and so it's kind of like we treat him like he's our kidney. You know, it's like, I don't know what my kidney does. I hope he's doing good in there. I guess he lives down there. I'm not really sure what he's up to or what he wants, but he's doing a good job because I'm still walking around doing whatever kidneys do, you know? And so we have this uh, ambivalent relationship, this foggy relationship with the Holy Spirit. And, uh, but I want to say that just in the beginning as we kind of get into, you know, what the fruit of the Spirit is and what, what the Spirit does is, um, you know, we talk a lot about the Father loves you. You know, you've, you've hopefully heard a, a couple of good sermons, and that's a journey to figure out, like, man, my Father, like, he's not a capricious, angry judge. He, like, loves his children, and he has a blessing for this world, and, and so forth, and he has a plan to save it. And, and it's, it's not uncommon in youth group to have somebody, hey, Jesus loves you. You know, Jesus loves you. Go out and hand a b- bottle of water, and, you know, five seconds to say the gospel to somebody. Hey, Jesus loves you. That's a common thing. I don't know what was the last time that somebody came to say, hey, did you know something? The Holy Spirit that lives in you loves you. The Holy Spirit loves you. The one that, that lives inside of you is not a, a mystic. He's not a magic superpower. He's not a force. He has a mind, will, and emotion. He's not neutral on you. He loves you. He pursues you. And so what the picture is the, in the Scriptures is the Holy Spirit, he comes in, and he, he says he, he just moves into you. He just, you know, that, that it'd be better that Jesus would go and that he would live with you and dwell with you. He's a temple. He makes you a temple, and he lives with you. And um, even when the times get tough and, and the rubber hits the road, he doesn't leave. He stays. And, and he loves you. And so, so he moves in, 
And the scripture says he moves in knowing that ahead of him is a path of relationship with you that's going to cause grieving to him, that's going to cause quenching, that's going to cause you giving him credit for things he didn't do and you taking credit for things that he's done in your life. He's, he's signing up in his rental agreement with you to move into a place where he's ultimately not wanted, at least in the beginning, where he's being resisted. I don't know if you, your mom or just a human being and you've ever you know, uh, made a meal for somebody and, they, and you cooked it and you made it and you got all the stuff and you did it with love and you packed it with care and you gave it to them and they're like, I don't really like potatoes next, you know. A little three-year-old kid's like, oh, where are the fish sticks? Dad's a better cook than you, or whatever, you know? I don't, I, you know, I don't know where your sore spot is, but it, it's, it's a hard, grievous thing to go ahead and give something to somebody, a gift that people don't receive. And that is, in a sense, what the Holy Spirit is doing. His job description is to come and dwell and live, even when the times get tough, when the rubber hits the road. And so, and so this is the nature, the perpetual nature of, of, of He lives with us. And so here's what the Gospel tells us about the purpose and the extent of, of the law. And that is... In the Bible, in the Old Testament, in the book of Galatians, we'll look at it specifically. It's speaking about the Jewish law, the 613 codes. But we all know what the law is because we have a stop sign right out there. And the law is sort of the external standard that tells us how we ought to be doing things, right? But what the Scripture over and over again commends to us is that the law, in its perfection to declare and explain what God wants, was inefficient to have power to change us into what God wants. The law could not fulfill itself. And we could not fulfill the law. And so the law became a curse because it essentially became all the things that we could not fulfill without the Spirit. And so the law, whether it's you know, the, um, the, 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 the constitutional laws that we live in today, or the law of Moses, the law can change what someone wants, but only love can change, or can change what someone does, but cannot change what someone wants. Love is the only thing that can do that. And so Jesus describes love like this. This is the way the Spirit loves us. The greater love has no one than this that a man would lay down his life for his friends. And I take that to mean not just would you die for somebody, but day after day would you get up and lay down your desires and lay down your privileges and lay down your rights. This is the way that the Spirit, the Spirit loves us. And so um, there is a, a pretty profound uh, message in the gospel, in the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus, that the power of the Spirit that resurrected Christ from the dead now lives in us, as Ephesians tells us. And he's not ambivalent or neutral towards us. He loves us. He's coming and he's staying. He's not a good time Charlie and he leaves when the times get, get tough. He stays with us and he dwells with us. And he's come because he has power to change us. And what I want to look at before we get into the gifts of the Spirit and the baptism of the Spirit is to look at the fruit of the Spirit because in the fruit of the Spirit I think we see the character of the one that lives inside of us and the nature by which he engines our transformation. The, the Spirit has not come to just make us holy or make us happy. The Spirit has not come to just underwrite our dreams. The Spirit has come to make us unsuccessful sinners, to, to make us successful in becoming like Christ. That's what fruit is in the Spirit. And, and so the Spirit, if, if, as we look at this, this passage and we think about what goes on day to day in the, in the, in the residency of the Spirit, that he, he essentially covenants with us, almost like a marriage, and what is it that the transaction happens that, as, as, as basically as Paul just just preaches to you so clearly in Galatians 2, the whole purpose of this book is that not only, not, not, no longer does Paul live in himself, but Christ lives in Paul. And how does that take place? How does the one that used to hate Christians and kill them get turned into the very nature of the one he tried to kill? That's a pretty profound statement. What is it about that power that brings a vehicle from, from, from hating Christians to becoming like Christ? That's a powerful thing indeed. And, and, and as we read, I want to I propose to you that the mechanism by the transformation that he's talking about in the terms of the fruit of the Spirit is not... Uh, first and foremost, osmosis, 
How many guys would like to go to sleep and wake up holy tomorrow, right? So it's not just, <laughs> you, you didn't think of lustful things today, like the force be with you, right? It's like, it's not osmosis. It's not this, just, just this sprinkling thing that, boom, like outside of my own will, that Jesus takes the wheel, and all of a sudden I become like Christ. That is not the way that, that the power of transformation takes place. So it's not osmosis, and it's not intimidation. And heaven knows that if you live 24 hours down here on this earth, that money and power and fear and manipulation and coercion are all great, way to, great ways to get people to do stuff. But that is not how God changes us. The invitation is not of osmosis and not an intimidation, but of intimacy. It's of life on life, uh, back and forth communication that the Spirit insists. Yes, I know that carrots and sticks will change you. Yes, I know that maybe you can white knuckle it for three to six months and get something done without me. But I'm not going for success. I'm going for fruit. And the fruit of the Spirit, love and joy and peace and patience, does not come from intimidation or osmosis. It comes from intimacy. It comes from back and forth. It comes from a want to and not a have to. So the great gospel message here is that if you've only known of gospel and church, of things you don't want to do that you do because it makes your mom happy, you don't know yet the power of the Spirit. Because the Spirit did not come to make you do things you don't want. He came to change what you want. He came to change your entire DNA, the orbit and stratosphere of what goes on in your mind and your heart of, of what you actually want. He is able to and wants to and will settle for no less than doing that. So if, if God put out a monster.com of who the Spirit came to be and do in our, and, and occupy in our life, it would be Ezekiel 36. I think Jeremiah 29 is another great one, but let me just read this to you. Ezekiel 36, the job description uh, for the Holy Spirit. We'll know the Spirit because he'll act like this. For I will take you out of the nations, says the prophet Ezekiel. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land, and I will sprinkle you clean with water, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols, and I will give you a new heart and, a new, and put a new spirit on you. Notice it doesn't say, I, I will give you a new accountability partner, right? I will not give you a new law to follow. I will actually have the power to change what you want. That's, that's incredible. That's incredible. Like, like the vision is, you are going to go from a person who does not like singing in church. You think it's so stupid and mundane, Right? And all of a sudden, because you trust him and you, process, you, you keep in step with the Spirit, you follow his leadership, you start off by just doing the thing that you don't want because they, he, he want, you know, it's like because love changes what we want and changes what we do. But then, but then in laying down your preference, you don't just prefer their preference. Their preference starts to become your preference. You start to like football because he likes it and because it's awakening you and it's because it's, it's inviting you to things. And so then the very same things which maybe you didn't like before, you now develop a taste bud and that is no short of a miracle because your heart is being worked on by the Spirit even right now. I will remove from you a heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my Spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the law of the land of your, uh, land of your ancestors and you will be my people and I will be your God. So here we are, Galatians uh, 5. Are you there? Galatians 5 uh, says this. What is the fruit of the Spirit? What does it look like for the Spirit to grow fruit in me and, and you? You, he says, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. He says, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. So freedom is a very loaded uh, American term, right? Because it's 1776 and July 4th, and freedom means, you know, what is America? I took a class one time on the American dream, and they asked all the kids, and everybody was like, it means freedom, you know? It means William Wallace, like freedom, you know? But, okay, so, but when he's talking about freedom, and it'll transpose into the very next passage here, what he's not talking about is just freedom it means do whatever you want. Because actually Paul's right, or more right than Thomas Jefferson, in the sense that 
Paul is telling us that freedom is not just do what you want. Freedom is living on purpose, living the way that you were designed. How many of you guys know that a fish that is outside of a fishbowl is not free? A fish outside of the fishbowl is realizing his limitations and realizing he's actually more of a slave to oxygen than he was to water, and he belongs in the fishbowl. So a fish out of, out of the water is not free. So the pursuit of freedom is not the pursuit of doing what you want, because how many of you guys know there's a lot of people with a lot of money that can do whatever they want, and they are not fulfilled. And so they're, therefore they're not free. They're still a slave to their ambitions and their appetites and all the things that go on in their life and probably the other bosses that they traded one for the next, but every pharaoh has a pharaoh. And eventually, right, freedom does not lead us ultimately to fulfillment, but love does. So he says this, he says, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. A fish is to water as humans are to love. You will not be fulfilled doing whatever you want outside of love. That will not be freedom. And so he's, he's telling you, whether it's the 613 laws that were here in the Old Testament or the spirit that we live in today in the New Testament, the whole purpose of God in you it's to love God and love man. And it's never more complicated than that. It's to love your neighbor as yourself. That's the f- f- total fulfillment. And so I think down here, you know, in, in the Bible Belt, there, there is a false dichotomy there of people say, well, in the Old Testament, that was the time when God was mean and, uh, and now he's nice. And that was the time when God like, told us what to do and now he doesn't tell us what to do anymore. And that could not be any further from the truth. That's not, that's not what happened, right? So there's a false dichotomy. You say we're free from the law to live in grace. And by grace, I think what people mean is you just give up and you just do whatever you want and then God just forgives you for it in the end. And that is absolutely not what the gospel, right? That's not what the gospel is saying, right? The gospel is saying you are not free from the law to live in grace because Noah had grace. The grace is not unique to the new covenant. Grace was always existent. Moses had grace. How's Moses doing what he's doing? He's got grace. How's Elijah doing? He's got grace. Grace means God meets you where you are. Jacob had grace. So grace exists way before Jesus got here because the cross goes backwards and forwards. So grace is not new or old. And... Jesus says we're going to fulfill the law and be more righteous than the Pharisees. So he's not not doing the law. Paul says, I actually love the law now. I delight in it just as much as David loved the law. So it's not free from law to live in standardlessness, to live in lawlessness. It's free to live in the spirit. You'll never hear Paul say free to live from the law to live in whatever you want. He says free from the law to live in the spirit, which actually might hold a higher standard to you than the law itself. He says, you know, if you say to yourself that I never had lust, and it's like, well, how about you're undressing people in your, with your eyes in public? Like, that's not what love looks like, right? So maybe the Spirit even calls it to a higher standard. And so I talk about it this way. I brought it up in a sermon illustration a couple months ago, but I'll reuse it because it does help me think about it. But it's like you break your arm. Leo broke, broke his arm a couple summers ago. And you take that little saw and zip, and zip it off, and you're, whew, and you're so, can't, you just can't scratch it enough. It's so great to get that cast off, right? And Paul's going to make this argument in Galatians throughout the whole book from beginning to end. There's two stupid things you could do when you get your cast off. The number one stupid thing you could do is go tape the cast back on your arm. That's stupid. The whole purpose of the cast is not for you to live in a cast the whole time. The purpose of the cast is so it can heal you. But the cast didn't heal you. The cast could hold you and suspend you and keep you from knocking it and rubbing it, you know, on the wrong thing. But it was, it was there as a temporary custodian. It was there to get you from the place of brokenness all the way to Jesus so the spirit could take you over. But the law, right, was not necessarily a bad thing. It held you in suspension. It could hold you, but it could not heal you. So understand what it did and what it didn't do. Now, what he's going to argue, though, is that the second stupid thing you could do once you have the law off is just think that you can just take your arm and just bang it against as many trees as you can, you know, and put it out in Woodruff Road and have it get broken again as though that's the purpose of getting the cast off. No, the purpose of the cast, of getting the cast off, is not to do what you want. The purpose of the cast is to live in the Spirit and fulfill what the cast can never do. Romans 8 says... What the law could not do, God did in you. 
The Spirit is showing off by changing your heart and having you actually be more righteous than Pharisees because now you're doing it for love and not for law. Because law cannot change you, but love can. And the idea is that he's not working through osmosis or intimidation, but through relationship, through intimacy. Okay? And so it's not a, it's not a Jesus take the wheel. There is, a, there is a back and forth relational conversation of the Spirit lives in me, and I live with the Spirit, and he wants to speak with me and change my desires. So this is what he says. Okay? If you have the Spirit of God inside of you, and you are a healed, circumcised heart, new creation person, and you live the law without having the law, needing the law. You, you just, the Spirit lives out of you, and you, uh, Jesus either is, is, is fulfilling the law for you by his blood and atonement and justification, or in you by sanctification. This is what you should be doing on Monday. He says, so you got this guy, he's the Spirit, he lives in you, he loves you, he's laying down his life, he's not a good time, Charlie. So, he says, if that's true of you, go walk with him. Go on, what does the Australians say? Go on a walkabout. Okay? Go, go walk it out with him. Because he's, he's leading you. And you, uh, you should not, therefore, in that walk, gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit. And the spirit, what is contrary to the flesh. So remember Jesus says in Matthew 4 when he's baptized and the spirit sends him to light someone like a dove. He didn't get transported into the desert. He got led there. So there is a call and response, at least in my mind's eyes, I'm thinking about that narrative. The spirit called him and then Jesus followed him. What else is leadership, right? It means I have a choice to not or to follow. And, and it says that Jesus followed the Spirit into the desert, and that is the nature, that he's not doing a trance, he's doing a dance. He's inviting a call and response relationship, and so the, the language that Paul uses is to keep in step with the Spirit. He's not just going to take you over and just automate you. So the Spirit is what is contrary to the flesh, and they are in conflict with each other. And then he says, so that you do not do whatever you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Okay? So Paul says, you wake up, and instantly, I mean, as if it wasn't confusing enough, instantly, if you got saved yesterday, the Holy Spirit marks you and begins to live in you, and he's not leaving, and he's not letting go. And the Spirit is not a force, he's a person, so he has desires. And so now, you're in this situation where you say, come Holy Spirit, I want to know you, I want to be filled with you, I need more of you. The Christian life is not just hard, it's impossible without you. I need you, I need to be filled with the Spirit. That's what we talked about from, from uh, uh, Ephesians uh, chapter 5. Okay, so not drunk on wine, but full of the Spirit. I want the Spirit in my life. Now, here's the tricky part. Now, there are plenty of people out there that are, that, are, that are not asking. They're not asking for the Spirit. And if you don't ask for the Spirit, then you're just working on intellectual ideas. This is not a matter of talk. This is a matter of power. And so if we're askless Christian, if we are not asking for the Spirit, we're just frustrating ourselves. Don't, don't not ask for the Spirit. That is a great thing to ask for. Ask for the Spirit. Now, the other problem, though, is that there, a lot of us, it's like it's harder to do this, but you're, you ask, but there's no testing. And so it's just craziness, right? And so we talked about this last week, but there's a whole camp out here that, that, at, that does not ask, and they just criticize things that they see. It's like, oh, that guy didn't heal that person the right way, and that person didn't like the way they got saved, and da-da-da-da, and just, you know, like, like a fine wine, we're just articulating what kind of theology we need in our pulpits and that kind of thing. So it's just, person, stop asking. And there's just a powerlessness. And the world looks at that and goes, every other spiritual thing that happens in this world happens through experience, but you're not doing anything that has to do with experience. You're doing everything intellectually, and there's no power. But then you have this other, you know, custody battle over here of these people that are just craziness. And there's no, and, and they're just like, well, I'm not going to do that, so I'm going to try something. But they stop to test. And First John says, he says very clearly, like, there are many spirits. Just because you're transcendent and you have some spiritual emotional experience and you have a sunrise or you, you know, read a Brene Brown book, like that does not mean that's the Holy Spirit, right? So test those things because there are many spirits that all want your attention and they'll all tell you that they're Jesus. But if they are not 
submitted to, the Hebrew and the Greek of all 66 books, then it's not the Holy Spirit. So ask by testing and test by asking. And the reason why there is always extremism without wisdom is because it's easier to walk in extremism than moderacy. It's easier to walk with one without the other. So there's a balance, there's a, there's a tension there, okay? So he says, ask for the Holy Spirit and then, and, then, and then test. And so the number one question you could ask of the Holy Spirit is, Holy Spirit, what do you want to do today? That's it. That's the transformational nature of the Spirit. Is my will becoming more like his will because I'm more concerned with what he wants than concerned with what I want? And so it's hard. It's not, I'm not saying it's easy to, be, to test the spirits. It's, it's, you've got to fail. You've got to try. You've got to show up. I mean, you have to be relational. It's not just osmosis. It's not just, yes, sir, drill sergeant, sir, just do whatever. It's like there is a give and take of this thing that's harder to do. You know, intimacy is harder to do than intimidation. So you're asking him, Holy Spirit, you want to do. And then the minute you ask for the Holy Spirit, you just assign yourself homework. You just assign yourself 66 books and the community around you to discern what he's saying because this is relationship and it's not, it's, it, it's, 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 it's a rigorous thing to be filled with the Spirit. Okay, so Holy Spirit, what do you, what do you want to do today? What do you want to do today? And, and, and just a thought, and what he's saying there is that, I thought this was encouraging. Let me just read this first. He says, um, you got a flesh and you got a spirit and the flesh basically does what God wants or what you want to do and the spirit does uh, what God wants to do. Romans 8 says the same thing, that the mind of the one in the flesh does what it wants, the mind of the spirit does what God wants, and those two things wake up battling for your attention, okay? So they're both going to be speaking to you, and we're testing through that thing. But look what it says down here in verse 17. They're in conflict. He says, so, do, notice it says, do not do whatever you want. Now, that's encouraging to me because what that means is that it's not saying just do all the things you don't want to do, it's just saying there is a category when Jesus prays at Gethsemane, Lord, your will be done and not mine. There is a category of spiritual growth that looks like me doing stuff I don't like. And the religious people, they love that. And listen, there's part of that that goes into just doing things I don't like, just do them, right, of discipline. But the lion's share, I'm reading in most of the scripture, is that it's not just a sense of discipline and duty. It is a sense of devotion and delight. So here's what I get out of this, is that when you wake up in the morning, there's plenty of things to do. And there will be a category of things like, Call your mom or go, with that, go spend time with that anxious person that drives you crazy or whatever it is that the Spirit wants you to do and trust that he's going to change your heart on it. But here's what I would say. Let's spend most of our time. Hey, look, if there's something that you want to do and God wants to do with you, then why don't we do that? <laughs> that would be a great way to start off the day, right? Like if he wants you to sing a worship song, then sing a worship song. And if you love to do that, then that can build that sense of momentum. And so I don't know if that's just all of virology or a little experience there to give you. Sometimes the spirit might say, hey, I don't want you to do that right now. I want you to do this over here, and that's fine. But, but I'm just saying there's categories of this thing, and it's not all about white knuckling, and basically you just doing a bunch of stuff that you don't want to do. The heart of the Lord is to, cha- is to transform and not just to, to provoke. Okay, so here's a couple thoughts as we get into the last half of the passage and some equipping. Okay, what do you want to do today, Holy Spirit? A couple of thoughts in discerning the difference between the voice of the spirit and the voice of the wolf and the voice of the hired hand and the voice of you and the voice of your mother-in-law and just all the other voices, right? So what is the Holy Spirit saying? One of the things that I would, we could test with is, is if he's leading and we're following, if our job is to keep in step with the one that loves us, then the, the request is going to sound, this is the words I use, more like intimacy than intimidation. Intimacy than, than intimidation. There's a side of you that just feels behind all the time, man. And I don't know, like, I, I've never woken up a day that I just didn't get just rushed with anxiety and, like, things that I could screw up and the things that are all on my shoulders and all these things. They're just, like, intimidation. And it's like, it's like the devil knows Scripture, too. And that thing can hit you with a bunch of, like, 
Christianese and a bunch of doctrine even and philosophy and stuff. And it'll be like, hey man, get it done, get it done, get it done. And it's not just the words, it's the tone. 80% of communication is nonverbal, right? And so the tone of the way that the Spirit comes to you can get discerned and discovered, I think, sometimes by is it intimacy or is it intimidation? Is it, you know, you, sometimes you put the Bible down and you're like, man, that is so far, okay? It's so far from anything. I don't want to, I barely want to preach to myself. I don't want to preach to some stranger who's going to throw a stone at me, right? So I could totally get that. I'm with you on that. There is, there is absolutely some scripture that could feel intimidating to you. But you know what the Spirit does? He says, you know, I'm not interested in getting you to go out to the destination of where I called that person to be. I'm worried about you. And I'm going to call you to take this next step. So what's your next step? I'm here to build you up and not break you down. The second thing that I have is, you know, you've maybe heard it before, John 14, 26. We're talking about how to hear the voice of the Lord, how we know it's not bad pizza, right? The Spirit is an advocate, says Jesus. Jesus knows a lot about the Spirit because it's his personal presence. And he says the Spirit is an advocate, not an accuser. And the, and the accuser wakes up and can't wait to talk trash about people. Do you know a Spirit like that? Do you know an accuser? Do you know that side of you that just wants to talk about other people and why they're a mess and why you're so frustrated at them and why you want this to change and that to change? And that's not what the Spirit's up to. He wakes you up at six and seven and eight and you go on your walk and you take your coffee and it's a precious time and he begins to advocate. He begins to build people up. He begins to champion people. He begins to seek and save the lost. And so is the voice that we're hearing, I mean, it might have scripture in it, but is the posture of advocacy or accusation? That's a question I would think of when I'm talking about trying to hear what the Spirit is saying. All right, so we're getting into the very last part of Galatians 5, 19, beyond. And I, there's three points in here. Is the voice producing flesh or fruit? And the three categories I saw was immorality and idolatry and independence. So look at what it says. Verse 19. The acts of the flesh, he says, this is how you call out the non-Holy Spirit. The flesh side of, of, of your desires. The acts of the flesh, he says, they're obvious. There's sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery. So I divided it by semicolons because that's his flow of thought. So he, he has the first category with one semicolon. And the first three on his list say sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery. Which is interesting to me because if you remember the fruits of the Spirit, the very first fruit of the Spirit is love. But that's interesting because if you go back, the, the very first act of the flesh is lust. I think that's interesting to me because, because essentially, because lust is about the thing that I like and how much I can take of it. But love is about the thing that I love and how much I can give to it. And those are two completely different things. Right? So it's like lust says, if I see a beautiful flower, I want to take it and own it and manipulate it and make it an object. That's what lust is. Love says, I see something beautiful and I want to pour my life onto it. And the Spirit is saying those are two different categories of life. Right? So maybe one of the ways that we learn to walk in step with the Spirit and know the difference between the bad pizza I ate, the bad mood I'm in, the lack of sleep that I got, or the guilt that I have from some other preacher preaching to me, right? Or Oliver preaching to me in, in, in the case that somebody could snag words, like it could get it to you the wrong way, is the way that I can tell, one of the ways I can tell is, is the fruit of the Spirit will begin to put other people's names in my prayers. That's a little note that I had. When you go down and you look in your prayer journal, and these are uh, actually uh, free now, you can go grab them, or uh, you can just use your moleskin. And I would just encourage you that it's the daily, weekly, and, and monthly rhythms of prayer that ultimately build up uh, the heart of Jesus within, within inside of us. But in that prayer time, if you go back over the last 30 days, if all of the prayers have no other names than your own, I think the Spirit is leading you somewhere else. I think that this, the, the fruit of the Spirit is to love. It's, it's looking at something that you find to be valuable and beautiful, and it's, and it's causing you to so trust in the way that God has positioned you to, to give and pour out that it's, that it's going to move you from lust to love, that's moving you from taking 
uh, into the posture of giving. And I think that's one of the immediate, at least, juxtapositions that I see between the list of the acts of the flesh and the acts of the Spirit, or the fruits of the Spirit. All right, the second list here, verse 20, talks about idolatry and witchcraft. Stop. So that's the two next words before the semicolon, and then a really long list. Idolatry and witchcraft. So idolatry is anything other than Jesus. And so I was convicted of this, you know, just the other week. I'm going through my prayer journal, and I'm realizing that all of my prayers begin and end around the orbit of this church. Like, I'm realizing that my prayer life is more and more, if you look from, you know, a couple months ago to last month and all that stuff, that because of different, you know, whatever it is, stresses or needs or goals or agendas and things, that, like, it's, it's not a bad thing. Church is not a bad thing, but how many know it's a, bad, a good thing that is made to be a God thing becomes an idol? And if I go through my list and everything on my list is my kids, the house that I'm going to live in, and, and or, it's, or it's this, you know, person that's a struggle and a strife in my life, if everything has orbited around one topic in my prayer journal, I've got to ask myself, why is that thing at the center of my prayer life? And where did Jesus go? Because idolatry is putting anything at the center of my life other than Jesus, even good things. And the Spirit will never lead us to idolatry. And so if there is not a vision in our prayer life that looks like families and neighbors and nations, it doesn't look like something beyond our orbit into things that are, that are beyond our sphere of control and asking God to go do uh, mighty things in other places, then I've got to ask who's at the center of my prayers? Who's at the center of the will of my prayers, because the fruit of the Spirit is never idolatry. It is worship. It is worship the one that is worthy. And then lastly, uh, a thought, and this is a long list, but let me just read it. So beyond witchcraft, it says, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of uh, rage, selfish ambition, uh, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. Um, The category that I see from verse 20 and beyond is essentially independence. It's, it's, It's coming into life. Okay, how do you get into backbiting and, and, and how do you get into political rivalries and how do you get into factions? You basically go into a room and say, I know everything, everybody else get in line, right? How, if you want to go into a room and go cause dissension and political backbiting and gossip and, and all this stuff, you just go in and talk and don't listen. That's pretty much how you do that, right? And so this, the fruit of the Spirit is, is not, you know, getting us into a prayer life that centers around us and centers around our idols and centers around, you know, the things that um, we know and what other people don't know, but they, the fruit of the Spirit would lead us to a, a pace and a rhythm with others and with him of, co- of interdependence, not codependence, of interdependence and community. And then also, just to type off, uh, top off the iceberg, uh, if um, uh, our prayers would ever lead us to drunkenness or orgies, that would also be not something that we would pursue um, because that would not be the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, no, uh, I think that it was interesting that both drunkenness and orgies go next to each other because they basically are saying what's enough is not enough. I need to have more in order to be satisfied. And it's this ache and craving of the flesh that points itself out and makes it obvious. Paul says that the fruits of the flesh are obvious. So if you think about it, here's the, here's the switcheroo of this whole thing. If the Spirit is living in me to change what I want, to actually not just do what he wants, but want what he wants, here's the great irony of this thing if you look at the list and you just put them up on a whiteboard. The fruits of the Spirit are actually what I want. Did you see that? I don't want to die tomorrow and have somebody give my eulogy and be like, you know what? That guy, Oliver, was a rage machine. Man, he just let it rip on his wife and he could just bring up the past and dig up wounds, just talk about stuff that he wasn't supposed to. Man, he was incredible at rage. He had the gift. He had the gift of rage, basically. It was awesome. You know, like that's, that's not what I want. I don't, I don't want, um, what is it? Uh, some of these other words. I, 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 I don't want to um, be thought of like, 
oh, he was so divisive. Like, he was just so good at saying one thing to person A and then going around their back and saying something else completely different to person B and creating division and rivalry. This is not what I'd want, right? This is, this is what we would want read at our funeral. Like, we would want to have a sense of peace. This, you know, when, 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 when Oliver was in a place, he brought not a sense of peace uh, keeping, but peacemaking. He was a non-anxious presence. And he was able to bring balance in the room, not because he was skilled at it, but because the spirit was in him. Don't I, don't I want that? Don't you want that? And this is, you could talk to a, not anybody down the street. Nobody doesn't want to be good. There's plenty of cynicism in this world, right? There's these people that like everything has to be a sexual joke and everything has to be sarcastic and everything has to be negative. And then you meet somebody that's good, that's just like enjoys life and is thankful for the meals that they have and walks with friends and just loves people well. Like, I want to be good. This is like the spirit is not leading me somewhere I don't want to go. I don't not want to have joy. I don't want to be bitter and arguing about the past. I want to have a sense of gratitude to live in the moment. I don't want to be, um, I don't want to be harsh to people. I don't want, Oliver was so, kids were scared of him. He was just, his facial expression was so hateful and harsh. It's like, I want to be kind. That's what I want to be known of. And so here, this is my point. My point is, is that the spirit, when he's leading us places, he's not leading us in his own selfish ambition. He's leading us to where we want to go. Do you catch that? The Spirit did not wake us up today to go lead where he wants us to be because he's selfish. He's leading us to where we want to be. And he's trying to teach us. How many of you guys know that this is exactly how someone's changed? Someone has changed not by the carrots and sticks. Like you can't change a kid by like just telling them enough times and then just scaring the living daylights out of them. You know what really changes a kid? The kid realizes that the thing that he thinks that he wants is not really what he wants. That's the only, like a kid has to just realize, I don't want to be a stinky kid. <laughs> And then he's like, okay, I'm going to start taking showers. And you can bark at him all day long, but he's not going to change until he realizes the thing that he wants is not really the thing that he wants. And the thing that he thinks that he doesn't want, at least in the short term, is actually leading him to the place that he actually wants to go. And that's the only way maturity happens. This is the way that the Spirit begins to work on us to show us that the way that we're heading is not actually what we want. And the thing that he's asking us to do, whether it be tithing or evangelize or, or confront people uh, with love and truth and gospel or to sing louder than we ever have before, even though we're tone deaf, starts out sometimes like things we don't want, but actually is where we want to go. It's actually where we're headed and we're not free until we get there because love is the fulfillment of the law and God has come to do what the law cannot do in us through the power of the Spirit. And so this is the nature and the theology, at least from Paul's vantage, of what change looks like. So those who belong to Christ, says Paul as he closes, they've been crucified with the flesh. This is what he says. With its passions and its desires. They've just decided to say goodbye to that. They wake up with these thoughts. They started with like 99 of them. And then it got down to 70. And then it went back up to 80. But then it went back down to 40, you know. And they just decided, that's just not me. And they've said goodbye to that old desire. That's not where I'm headed. I remember preachers used to say, you know, you don't have to live under the law anymore. You can live in the spirit. You don't have to live in the flesh. You don't have to live with those sinful desires. You know, the youth pastor, you don't have to live there anymore. You could live over here. And I always just want to raise my hand and be like, yeah, it's like, I know I don't have to, but I really want to. How about that? Like, I really still want to go live in the flesh. I don't know if any person would ever preach it that way and say, hey, you don't have to live in the flesh anymore. You can live in the spirit. It's like, I want to live in the flesh. That's not my problem, right? But you think about it this way. It's like, I remember we had this uh, exchange of principles my very first year of teaching. And the one principle had a certain way of doing things, and the second principle had another way of doing things. And there was a season, basically around April, when we all figured out the new principle was coming, that the first principle just retired. And so, the, you know what they call That's a lame duck. That person has no authority anymore, right? 
So it's not the question of like, do I want to live in the flesh or not? It's the question of like, when Christ returns and his kingdom is established, will I have ever wanted to live in the flesh? Because whether or not we believe it or not, Christ has established himself as king and authority over all of the known realm, what is good and evil and righteous and just. He has set up his throne room on justice and righteousness. And it's not about what I want. It's when he comes back, what will I regret? I will come to that place and I will say, I so wish I would have gotten those years back. I wish I wouldn't have wasted my time on building up something that's dying. I wish I wouldn't have built a kingdom that's not going to last. That's what's on the stakes here. It's not what do you want today. It's what will you want when he comes back, when you see him face to face. And so I'd say, yeah, you could live in the flesh or you could live in the spirit, but you won't want to. You might want to now, but you won't want to when he returns. And now is the time when he's ushered in, he's inaugurated his authority. And that's, that's where we live in the already not yet. So he says, you're going to crucify your flesh and you're going to live by the spirit and keep in, in step with the spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking or envying each other, but keep in step with the Spirit. I think it's funny that at the very end of the list of the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. Because I thought the whole thing about becoming full of the Spirit is like basically being Jesus take the wheel. Like God controls me. But the reality is, is that the Spirit didn't come to just change what we do. He came to change what we want, make us want what he wants. And actually discover that what he wanted for us is really what we want. It's what we need. And so through all this, I think it's, fitting that the last fruit of the Spirit is self-control. Because self-control is a sense of, it's hands-off. It's saying, I'm not only doing what God wants, it's I want what I want. Or I want what He wants, and I'm, and I'm controlling, and I'm doing the thing that He's always wanted me to do. It's like, I think a farmer, you know, if you think about this whole analogy and, and tease it all out with the fruit of the Spirit, the farmer seeing a fruitful tomato, if he's ever seen how hard it is to plant a tomato, knows that ultimately he didn't plant the tomato. But if you interview any farmer... He had his hand a lot to the tilling and the preparation and the soiling and, 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 and the tilling of that soil and so forth to get that fruit to happen. And so the fruit of the Spirit is a dance and, and not a trance. And so this is my question for us really throughout um, the next couple of weeks. But you might ask yourself, even this afternoon, before you get up out of your seat and go and do something, you, will be, you are essentially a walking um, uh, bundle of desires. That's what you and I are. And we do what we want. That's the reality. We can Fake it and do discipline something for three months or six months or nine months. But in the end, we always do what we want. And so we can't just have somebody that scares us into doing something we don't want. We need somebody that can change what we want. We need somebody that can change our wanter, is what my youth pastor used to say. And so, and so what is it that the Spirit wants? And, and how, how would we ask him this question? And as we discern that, we could trust that it's his voice because he's leading and not forcing, because he's an advocate and not an accuser, and because he's making fruit and not flesh. I would uh, invite you guys to stand, and um, there's a, a saying that me and Kyra talk about um, called being guided by her eyes. Sometimes I'll look at Kyra, and I'll say, hey, did you know the NBA playoffs are on tonight? And I kind of propose that we'd watch it, and I can just look at her face, and I'm like, okay, we're not watching the NBA playoffs tonight, okay? Because we're guided by people's eyes. We know relationally. We're in touch. We're in tune. We're not guided by legislation. We're guided by love, and that's essentially, I think, what what he's asking. And so his eyes are on you and he sees you and he hears you and he knows you and he knows what you want more than you even want yourself. And so the, the prayer is such a simple prayer, but it's the beginning of everything great. And we're not asked to go and do the next 50 steps. It's just the next step. Holy Spirit, what do you want? I know what I want. I know what my uncle wants, but like, what do you want? And so I just want to invite you, uh, wherever you are, to ask that question before we uh, respond and worship this morning. What a 
wonderful thing it would be to not have to take someone else's step, but to take the step that you are called to take. Spirit, sensitize, sensitize us, soften us. Um, Spirit, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Spirit, yours is the power and the authority. And we just thank you that whisper, one whisper from you is greater than any other shout. And so I pray that you would speak to hearts uh, even now in this room and then in the days that come. And that you would, um, you would build up your church to the stature of Jesus. Thank you that you made us unsuccessful sinners. Thank you that you haven't given up. And thank you that you will not leave, but you'll stay. And so we want to respond to you and receive you in this moment. We set this next uh, couple minutes apart as we sing and as we repent, as we lift up our hearts to you, Lord, that you would change us from the inside out. We don't just want our actions changed. We want our hearts changed before you. We thank you, Spirit, for not being capable to do this. We trust you in these things. Amen. Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc.